I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. It's a great pleasure to be in Melbourne, though it feels like a mixed blessing to address you on this daunting subject, migration and how fast states can regulate it. Let's get straight to the main point about human movement. It's an incorrigible habit. Long before the existence of sovereign borders, people moved over large land masses and crossed oceans to resettle far from their origins. They still do. Nowadays, we make much of migration across frontiers. It's what's come to count. So maybe for starters, we should have a rough idea of how many people alive on the planet today began in one country and ended up in another. It's roughly 215 million, according to the International Organization for Migration. And this is a lot of people by any standards, nearly 10 times the population of Australia. As a proportion of the world's population, it's around 3%. I was tempted to say only 3%. And here's something worth noting. There's a huge array of statistics about migration. But the further you get from the demographers who generate them, the more you hear them being used in the service of an argument or a point of view. Immigration is the subject of furious argument. It winds us up no end. We have to be careful and try to stay calm. I'll be using more statistics today, even though I'm not a scholar, and you'll see soon enough that I have a point of view. But for now, I'll leave you to decide whether 3% is only 3% or as many as 3%. Perhaps imagine you're looking over a hundred job applications and find three of those from people who no longer live in the country where they were born. Or if you prefer, consider the situation in Australia where the figure is higher and estimate whether 25 or 30 people in every hundred is a lot or a little in a globalised world with low-cost air travel and hair-raising mobility when it comes to capital and goods. I suspect that even in this room there'd be disagreement. Proportion is a huge part of the tussle over immigration. Ratios, percentages, forward projections for the ethnic character of populations, and so on. But a sense of proportion can be rare. Immigration produces dangerous bouts of panic in host communities. Europe just now is a good example, but it's true in South Africa and the southern United States. We have to rediscover our sense of proportion, and we have to hang on to it. You'll have noticed that the figures so far are all about human beings who cross international borders. In other words, they're about people who've stepped over a symbolic line. Yet if we were to suspend these symbolic lines for just a moment and pretend they didn't exist, we'd see what we saw before the development of modern sovereign states. That's to say, periodic movements of people in fair numbers, on land masses and the high seas. The difference between those days and ours is that there are many more people on the planet and correspondingly larger movements, and it's more or less constant. And the biggest movement nowadays is taking place in Asia. One area in particular is heaving with activity. Here, by 2011, more than 250 million people had left their place of origin or the place they'd been for as long as they could remember. That's odd, 
because the figure posted by the International Organization for Migration for total migrants worldwide is well short of that. Drop the national boundaries back into position and you'll understand why. The biggest migrations have taken place within a single border, in the sovereign territory of China, and they don't qualify for this particular count. The IOM knows this, of course. When it adds together in-country migration and cross-border migration, it arrives at a total of one billion. That's one in seven of us. The French writer Régis Debray believes that the border is a necessary outer fabric for a nation, a kind of skin around an identifiable community. He makes fun of the fashion for doctors without borders, reporters without borders, and dislikes the very concept of borderlessness. There's no doubt that borders have their purposes. They allow us to monitor the to and fro of life, mostly people and trade, and build accurate statistical pictures of the world within and the world without. They help us manage fundamental issues, such as the control of disease in plants and livestock, on occasion in human beings too. They're like electronic thresholds, increasingly they are electronic, registering shifts and evolutions we'd find it hard to keep track of in a borderless world. They also have a strong symbolic charge. Because they mark out jurisdictions, they rehearse the ritual of courtesy, in which I am a guest and you are my hosts. They also enact authority. You are the masters and I am the supplicant. May I come in? In theory, borders tell us who we are and who we are not. And again, in theory they should give us a reasonable sense of where our own limits as a community stop, or at least remind us that there are limits. I'm thinking here about what therapists and psychoanalysts call boundaries. The question nowadays is how much longer we want to hear the story of you and me, ourselves and the others, them and us, and the line in the sand. On this point, there are fierce quarrels in the world at large and at home within national communities. I think those who still want to hear the old story are getting the better of those who don't. As for boundaries, well, let me throw this out in passing. If they really can teach us how to behave as nations, what did my country, Britain, think it was doing waging a war in Iraq? So we're entitled to our doubts about the usefulness of borders. For all that's good or necessary about them, they're also places of human harm. These liminal zones defined by consensus of sovereignties are like the gates of fortified medieval cities for the world's 15 million refugees who hope to get to safety. And it's the same for many economic migrants pursuing livelihoods elsewhere in the absence of gainful work at home. And because frontiers enshrine the rule of law, you can come in, but you can't, borderlands are nearly always bad lands inhabited by people who failed to enter and reach the end of their journey and now subsist in a shadowy microeconomy that exploits that failure. Even today, the Mexican side of the border at Nogales, at the edge of Arizona, has a sinister, unsettling quality, like the border in Cormac McCarthy's Old Testament westerns. Still, let's be realists and accept that we're stuck with borders whether we like them or not. But borders are under pressure in the new century. In terms of the movement of goods and capital, and even global service industries, worldwide courier companies, private detention providers like Serco and G4 Security, borders look to me like lines of trampled rope on the muddy bank of a river. Why is this? Perhaps because during the 1980s and 90s, governments in most of the English-speaking world, Britain and the US especially, were wrestling with the model of deregulation. The ambition was to roll back the state, outsource much of its provision to the private sector, and release the caged animal of enterprise. 
The global market, the untrammeled global market, was the big idea again, as it had been in Manchester in the 1860s. The new liberalism is a utopian idea, I think, like international socialism. It has its theorists and commissars, its dogmas and lofty imaginings. The countries that found it most compelling at the outset, Britain is one, began in effect to conceive of themselves as local expressions of a world historical instance rather than sovereign states. That instance was the market. Commerce flourished as it always has, but it was ratcheted up. Money began to cross frontiers at fabulous speed. Wages were volatile. The local and the international became hard to distinguish if your job was about to be outsourced. And some people became inconceivably wealthy. It's taken me years to understand that the difference between outside and inside is seriously undermined by the current arrangement, whatever Debray may have to say. It doesn't matter if the person who's competing for your job is a migrant worker who lived next door to you in Australia or a Chinese employee on an outsourced Australian company platform in Beijing. What matters is the disparity in the wage and the employer's unending pursuit of cheap labour. Real, full-on liberal market champions aren't at all dismayed by immigration. They understand that once you have freedom of movement for capital, jobs and goods, you're in a difficult position if you want to regulate human movement. It can be done, but it's expensive. Migrants tend to boost economic performance, and it's invidious. Because you're saying, in effect, we abandon our control over the domestic economy in the name of the new global ideal, but we will continue to insist on the old pre-utopian rules about immigration. We will regulate who does or doesn't follow the money and jobs across our borders. Freedom of movement for capital, restricted movement for humans, or what Marxists used to call labour. Having our cake and eating it is not straightforward. Fifteen years ago, European governments were quite relaxed about immigration, relatively. Some countries in the thick of the Balkan Wars were also exemplary when it came to their intake of refugees. Germany was one, 400,000 Bosnians and Kosovans, if my memory's good. And please forgive me if I say in parenthesis, as a guest here, that Australia is struggling to get its own story into proportion. Look the figures in the face. You have roughly 50,000 to 100,000 refugees and asylum seekers, it depends whose figures you choose, or one refugee for every 200 to 400 non-refugees per head of population. That's the grand total. I don't mean year-on-year intakes. On the other hand, Australia has many more illegal migrants, visa overstayers for the most part, which doesn't seem to trouble you at all. I promised myself when I was invited here that I wouldn't tell my hosts what they should or shouldn't think. But on right of asylum, I've begun to wobble. I'd say, be confident and law-abiding, stick to the rules and obligations of the Convention on the Status of Refugees, as Germany did when the Balkan Wars erupted in the early 90s rise to the occasion. If you want a genuine regional solution, don't focus on the people smugglers. Some are ruthless, some aren't. Oscar Schindler was a people smuggler. But focus on the people. Two events have scared us out of our wits about immigrants in general, not just asylum seekers. 9-11 and the banking crisis. For the purposes of our conversation here, the banking crisis is really a crisis of devolved sovereignty. It's the story of governments and states finding their financial arrangements in the hands of Olympian players with no allegiance to national priorities. I don't know whether governments even had the choice, maybe they didn't, but the crash was a blow to freedom of human movement in the US and certainly in Europe. 
For one thing, the economies were no longer so attractive, but far more important, surely, was the fact that a lot of people in the EU member states were disillusioned with the new global utopia. They'd been frog-marched into the liberal market model by Brussels, ceded their sovereignty, resigned their currencies, and felt that their venerable models of getting along were under attack from a vast number of rules and regulations on the one hand and increasing international competition on the other. The visible form of these pressures and intrusions, the object of suspicion, was the foreign migrant. Governments were quick to identify with anti-immigration stirrings in the press and tried desperately to reinvent an inside and an outside in the windswept continent we'd seemed to become. The emergence of extreme right-wing anti-immigration groups in several European countries is the best indicator of our unhappiness with globalisation and deregulation. In France, Marine Le Pen's national front is anti-globalisation, anti-international finance, somewhat anti-capitalist, anti-the single currency and aggressively opposed to immigration. Australians can count themselves lucky that extreme anti-immigration parties on the right aren't on the rise as they are on our continent. But the biggest blow to movement across borders was dealt by 9-11. A Melbourne audience will probably recall that the Tampa decision in 2001 swung against the asylum seekers at the last moment after the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York. The Tampa, Europeans may not know, was the name of a Norwegian freighter that picked up asylum seekers from a little boat in distress and became the focus of the Australian government's fury when the captain requested permission to land. You could argue that in Europe 9-11 was the straw that broke the back of multiculturalism. It confirmed a nagging European worry about Islam and about Muslims, the enemy without, shortly to appear in Afghanistan and then Iraq, and the enemy within, because there are maybe 20 million Muslims in the EU, about 4% of the population. And remember, we've been busy trying to resurrect an old story about inside and outside. But suspicion of one outsider quickly leads to suspicion of another, and it wasn't long before the British press was up in arms about Eastern European labour, Polish workers especially, competing for work in the UK. I think we'd got it out of proportion. In Europe, we now have ambitious plans to fortify our external borders. We have more than 40,000 kilometres of maritime borders and nearly 9,000 kilometres of land border. We're spending billions on perfecting border control. We want a full biometric ID system for everyone coming and going, and we want to beef up military-style surveillance. We'll soon be deploying drones, as the US does along its border with Mexico. The Obama administration spent $12 billion in 2012 on border security, and the border with Mexico, which drunk up most of this money, is only 3,200 kilometres from east to west. The climate's changed. The border is our focus in wealthier parts of the world, and hyper-regulated migration in a global regime of deregulated movement for capital and jobs is our new dystopian ambition. Never mind that migrants who need to follow the money find themselves excluded. Never mind that they can't send back the remittance to the family or the business project in a developing economy. A few years ago, international migrants were remitting more than $400 billion, according to IMF figures, which is an awful lot of money being sent home by comparison with official aid packages for wealthy countries to poorer ones. There's a great story about migration by the Senegalese novelist and filmmaker Semben Ousmane. It's called The Money Order, and somewhere in the story, 
There's a letter from the young, ambitious sub-Saharan emigre who's made it to France and writes back home to his uncle about his prospects. Here's part of that letter. Dear uncle, God be thanked, I am well. I think of you day and night. I haven't come to France to play the beggar or the bandit, but to find work and earn a little money, and God willing, to learn a good trade. There is no work in Dakar. I couldn't spend my time all day, year in, year out, sitting doing nothing. When you're young, that is not good. I have repaid all the money I borrowed. Forty, fifty years on, this is precisely the person who's debarred by our fantasy of seclusion from a job in a functioning economy and unable to send earnings home to the family. So, the time's come to try and answer the question we've posed here. How far can governments patrol migration? Quite a lot is my answer. The argument has changed, the ground has shifted. Migrants are no longer welcome, and there's an immense show of will about keeping migration to a minimum. Governments now talk about targets. The British want to get net migration down to the tens of thousands. The French, Sarkozy was really good at this, like to announce how many illegals they plan to deport per annum. In Britain, we've put a price on the right to bring in a wife or husband or child from outside the European economic area. It rules out about 45% of the UK population. They just don't earn enough. We've put an end to highly qualified people coming in sight unseen in hopes of a job offer. And we have a cap on skilled labour from outside Europe. We've made it hard for international students to get to the UK or stay on after their studies. And if you want to settle for a while in Britain, we need to see the colour of your money. This is immigration control, all right. At the same time, most of the developed world is beefing up physical borders. Modern borders nowadays are eerie places. The US-Mexican frontier bristles with hardware like a militarised zone. It's striking, because a majority of unauthorised migrants aren't enemies seething at the gates. They're people who've been allowed into a country and then overstayed their visas. In this sense, exaggerated border security is a sort of retrospective, highly theatrical gesture made at vast expense, and its symbolic force is surely as important as its ability to deter. What does it symbolise? I'm not sure, but maybe states which feel threatened by the spectre of terrorism, or haunted by the prospect of being overrun by the wrong ethnicity, or states like the US, which have been waging semi-permanent war somewhere or other for years, are able to restage their anxieties in these large, steely, polemical shows of force down on their borders. Do I have to make the point again about a sense of proportion? On a grimmer note, border fortification tells us a lot about our new and fatal hunger for perfection, for completely leak-proof customs and immigration systems. I say fatal because the evidence suggests that human movement is hard to regulate to the last decimal point, or even to the tens of thousands of human beings. Managing humans is not the same process as tracking benign and malevolent cells in advanced oncology, and it's a kind of fanaticism to want to go there. Reasonable, humane migration management, with its failures and successes, is a creaky process, and it's been around for a hundred years or more, evolving into a complex, cumbersome, but functioning system that we'd now like to replace by near-as-damn-it, fully hermetic, siege-proof borders and watertight visa regimes. This is worrying for all kinds of reasons, but the biggest for me is that the wish to embed ourselves behind the perfect border reproduces border-like conditions, accessory perimeters and quarantines, at a remove from the frontier itself. Let's say the new fortified border is more or less efficient. 
but there are still unauthorized migrants in the community. And however good the technology, however thorough the patrols, there are still unauthorized goods and persons getting across. This is imperfect by definition. So, the next thing you need is detention centers and fast-track deportation processes. You need to build prisons and have someone run them. You contract this out to a global service provider, Serco for instance, or G4 Security again. You need your police force to keep an eye out for unauthorized migrants. Perhaps the jaywalker who just crossed in front of a police car should be asked for his ID. And perhaps there aren't enough law enforcers to invigilate the hinterland. So you start to think in terms of ancillary security on the streets. You're now busy undermining every civil liberty you imagined you were defending behind this grandiose, multi-tiered border. But having spent billions on the militarized option, it's difficult to turn back. What I've just described sounds like a hypothetical future, but actually, in the state of Arizona, on the border with Mexico, these kinds of vigilance and incarceration are already in place. Is the system leaky? It is. And in the Sonora Desert, which was thought to be a natural deterrent with no need for barriers, unauthorized migrants have been dying in their hundreds since adjacent parts of the frontier were beefed up. People who need to move will often be willing to take the risks you put their way. And increasingly, they're paying the price for our pursuit of perfectly sealed borders. The figures for deaths in Sonora, incidentally, are higher than the figures in Australia for losses at sea, but hardly anyone who enters from Mexico is claiming asylum. They're part of a long tradition of cross-border migrant labor, much of it undocumented. Whatever we think about states trying to thin down legal migration and keep out illegal migrants, we can't deny that they're acting by and large within their rights, and most forms of immigration control are perfectly lawful, whether we favour them or not. But on right of asylum, the situation is different. We know this. If a state is a signatory to the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, it can't ignore right of asylum when someone wishes to exercise it. A state can make things hard for that person, it can detain him or her while reaching a determination on the claim, but it can't actually refuse to hear it. Nonetheless, a signatory state can say, for instance, actually we have a queue for asylum seekers. And every year, for every 1,100 people living in this country, we will take one refugee, so stand in line. But out there in the real world, people may not have an opportunity to queue, and they may not have time, they could be running for their lives, and because there is a real desperation beyond our borders, especially in Afghanistan, where Australia has committed soldiers to a war, Australians now face the challenging prospect of taking roughly two asylum seekers a year for every 1,100 people living here. And I understand the anxiety, but forgive me if I repeat the figure for migration across borders as a global phenomenon. Three people in every hundred no longer reside in the country where they were born. It helps us get the measure of things. I'm from another part of the world where we too are alarmed by immigration and asylum. But it's strange, I count the number of arrivals by boat in Australia since 1976, when these sailings began, and 2013 as it draws to a close, and for those 38 years I arrive at a total of roughly 50,000. I turn to Europe and count the number of arrivals by boat in Italy from 2006 to 2011, as the so-called Arab Spring got underway, and for those six years, I arrive at a total of 150,000. Refugees and asylum seekers don't see themselves statistically. They're pretty much like us in that way. 
They have subjective priorities, including saving their lives and protecting their families, avoiding detention, interrogation, or feuds with local big shots in a movement like the Taliban over a forced marriage, for instance. I was in a detention centre a few days ago at Broadmeadows on the edge of Melbourne with some friends from Liberty. It's been a year or more since I spoke to someone who's been on the run. Like many of you here, I find I'm drawn to the big picture, trying to figure out what migration does to our societies, how it strengthens them, how it's said to weaken them, and what it means for our future. But the moment asylum seekers start explaining why they took to the road, the importance of the convention becomes crystal clear to me. Two Afghan Tajik women in Broadmeadows, 20 and 14 years old, are here because they've been harassed by extremists. They arrived on a boat. A third young woman who flew in is also from Afghanistan. Her brother was shot, her father is under threat. She's been waiting eight months for a determination. A robust Iraqi who was a driver for the coalition forces sits around in a bad fix because there's a discrepancy between his own story and the story that his travel agent, I use that term in the widest sense, submitted on his visa application without him knowing. He too came by plane and then claimed asylum. He's kicking his heels, hovering between bouts of boredom and acute anxiety. Two Palestinians from Gaza talk about life in the centre, but when one of them tries to explain what Hamas did to his relatives, he stops in midstream and puts his hands over his face. We turn back to the solo Afghan woman to find that she's also hit a troubling dip. She's been talking enthusiastically for 15 or 20 minutes, and now, suddenly, she's gazing at the window, and it's not at all clear she's looking out at the view. Governments can protest about queue-jumping for as long as they like. We can vilify the people smugglers and tarnish refugees by association with the illegal acts by their facilitators. But if we do that, we're compounding their misfortunes, and we're complicit with their tormentors in the countries they've fled. All this to discourage them from coming? Who's gaming the system at that point? The refugee or the convention signatory state? We know politicians have to be tough-minded about borders, this is the new zeitgeist, and we can't pretend it doesn't exist. But asylum is a special case. On right of asylum, states agree that a narrow band of their immigration policy is not a matter for their exclusive control. By extension, it means they commit themselves to a range of costs as refugees settle in. The evidence suggests that refugees pay these outgoings back over time. So in the end, it's a question of generosity. I don't mean bleeding heart generosity. I mean the generosity to stand by the agreements we've made as nation states, agreements that are now absolutely crucial to the lives of people trying to get here. And I mean the hard-headed generosity that can get over a few anomalies and failed asylum claims. After all, you don't close down the bus system because someone's been caught not paying a fare. Tony Abbott said earlier this month, sketching a new, super-harsh policy on asylum seekers, this is our country and we determine who comes here. It's an echo of John Howard, of course, at the time of the Tampa affair in 2001. We will decide, he said, who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. I've heard this kind of thing before, and so have you. I came across it about three weeks ago when I was reading Australian Landfall, the book that Egon Kish wrote about his visit here in 1934. Kish was a Czech journalist in the polemical tradition, a communist swashbuckler and die-hard anti-Nazi who'd come to address the All-Australian Congress of the Movement Against War and Fascism about what was happening in Hitler's Germany. But they wouldn't let him off the boat at Fremantle or again at Port Melbourne. 
So he jumped from the deck onto the quayside, quite a drop, and broke his leg. The Australian government weren't impressed. They ordered him back on the boat, and as Kish remembered it, the Attorney General started to insist at that point about countries having the right to decide who can and who can't enter. So these notions keep coming around. I should say, by the way, the Attorney General at the time was Robert Menzies. I should say, too, that this was 17 years before the Refugee Convention, and for that reason, Menzies had a stronger case than Howard or Abbott. When the High Court ruled that Kish was free to visit Australia and the ship docked in Sydney, the federal government threw another obstacle his way. It was the famous dictation test, but it had a special spin. They recited the Lord's Prayer in Gaelic and asked him to take it down. Kish didn't speak Gaelic, and nor did the customs officer who read it out. Like some secretary in an insanely dysfunctional government department, Kish sat the test and failed. And so he was denied entry again. It went to and fro for a bit, and eventually he was allowed out on bail. He hobbled round Australia speaking at rallies and meetings and had a whale of a time. He loved it. At a torch-lit procession in Melbourne to commemorate the burning of the Reichstag, he claims to have heard a group of Aboriginal Australian musicians perform a version of the Marseillaise. He says, and I've no idea if this is the truth, for the first time in the history of Oceania, Aboriginal Australians are taking part in a demonstration with the white people. In Queensland, he met Russians who spoke about the old country. He met German farmers, shepherds and workers from Minden and Marburg and other German settlements and he was adamant that they were all Australians. In the old days, he said, cattle buyers in the Darling Downs had had to do their business in German, but World War I had changed all that. Everyone was learning English. Nearly 80 years later, this is still how some of us in Europe see Australia, a strong, vigorous country built from many strands, a country of immigration par excellence, a country with a complicated past and an exuberant future. And I'll use a word I've used more than once already, generous. It feels like a generous place, or that's the sense I have in Melbourne, and I've only been in the country a week. But then I didn't have to jump onto the quay to get here. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.